Mark 1. Conversations at the speed of sound. And I mean, the DC3 door, being no pressure, it was just like an ordinary house door. Mm. And there was one day it started to come open in sight, so that we, that we had dishcloths and we're like old-fashioned um, knitted things and I had to knot a couple of those two together and I got it round the handle and anchored it so it didn't open because yeah. at a certain point it would have come completely open back to the plane, fuselage. You had to tie up the door Some to keep it shut? Yes, to keep the, the oh. handle oh. in the close position. The voice there of Mrs. Barbara Moody, and you'll hear more from Barbara in a few minutes. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Mac One, the podcast of the Queensland Air Museum Caloundra. My name is Gary Hills. I am a QAM volunteer, and I'll be your host for this conversation with three flight attendants. One who worked with British Airways on their long-haul international flights, one for ANSET Australia, and the third one for ANA, Australian National Airways. They each have quite a unique perspective that I think you're going to find interesting. If you are interested in seeing photographs or any of the videos, if we have videos that relate to our topics, just go to the Mac One Hanger on WordPress. You can type in one word, Mac One Hanger. That's O-N-E for one. Or you can click the link in the QAM website podcast page where you can find all of the podcast episodes. Go back through and have a listen to some of those if you've missed them. There is a button there that says see the, uh, the, the photographs that relate to this episode. That will take you to the Mac One Hanger. And that's also a place where you can leave comments feedback, or maybe ask us some questions. So now, without further delay, this is my first conversation with Sue McLeod in Hangar 2 at the Queensland Air Museum. I started with Ansett Airlines in 1974, and I flew with them for 17 years. I finished in 1991. And in those days, was Ansett flying internationally or was it all domestic? Reg Ansett was a visionary. His greatest desire was to fly internationally. He was pretty much thwarted most of the way, primarily really by Qantas, who were very, very um, protective of their air routes. So TAA and Ansett were kept basically as domestic airlines. The only things we did were up to New Guinea and we did fly out to Cocos Island. That was as international as it was in those days. And so that's a, quite a number of years to be working with ANSET. Were you based in the same city during that entire time? Well, Gary, I was from Melbourne. I was born and bred in Melbourne, and I joined ANSET in Melbourne and did my basic training there. Their policy was to always relocate you to another city, so they sent me to Sydney, and I was in Sydney for three years from 1971 sorry, 1974 to 1977, and then I transferred back to Melbourne. Uh, Don was based in Melbourne, and um, we'd met and married in 1981. So, yes, I felt my future was back in Melbourne. 
Now, people, for many people, the only direct experience they have with aviation is when they go on a domestic flight in an, uh, a commercial airliner. And generally speaking, the only people they interact with are the cabin crew or the stewardesses, as, you, as, you, as they were called. And so, for many people, you are the face of aviation, are you not? And, and you're the people that they rely upon when they're flying to have a safe and, and uh, pleasant experience. So your job is really important, isn't it? I think it is, yes, Gary. Uh, most people in the good old days were more concerned about how hot their cup of coffee was and particularly when we had flights in and out of Canberra with the politicians that how many drinks they could consume between uh, Sydney and Canberra. But uh, what they didn't really realise and think about and didn't have to think about was the safety aspect of why flight attendants are actually there in the first place. In my day it was one flight attendant for every 36 passengers so depending on the size of the aeroplane was the number of crew that were on that flight as a legal minimum number. And what sort of training did you have to do at the beginning? Um, I remember it was fairly intensive there was quite a lot of study on safety features. The things we needed to know were all the emergency equipment on the aeroplane, where it was and how to use it, and uh, the right type of fire extinguishers to use in certain circumstances. We did extensive training on ditching, because in those days we didn't carry life rafts, only on the Cocos and um, New Guinea flights, but we had to know what to do and how to deploy the uh, chutes which are attached to all the doors on every aircraft and still are. It's changed a lot. They have a lot more over wing chutes now but in those days they were all attached to the front and back doors. So the training was fairly intensive. It was a, a fairly glamorous time so there was a lot of attention to grooming and deportment and service of meals and the correct way to do things, folding napkins always making sure that the A for ANSET was pointed in the right direction on the little tray you were giving someone with their cup of tea and their little biscuit. There was, it, it was fairly intensive. It was about six weeks of fairly intensive training before you graduated and got your wings. Now, some of what you're describing there, let's leave the safety side uh, aside just for a moment. The, the attention to detail and the service of the customer and so on sounds very much like I imagine you would get as training in hotel management or hotel service but the difference the key difference is isn't it that you are let's say trapped or locked into this cabin for the duration of the flight with passengers who may be let's say nervous or unwell or even aggressive or whatever you know you don't know how they're going to behave so you're being asked to do something quite specific and I would imagine there would be pressure to to deal with that sometimes Yes, that's true, Gary. I have to say I had a very, very blessed career. I didn't really ever have any really major problems. We flew through lots of thunderstorms and that always upset customers, passengers. Uh, as far as the medical emergencies went, uh, nothing unexpected really. So I was very, very fortunate that way. But we had to, in those days, you had to have a St John's Ambulance course, diploma, or you had to be a nurse. A lot of early air hostesses were from a nursing background because you had to have, you had to have done a reasonable amount of training on the medical side as far as um, resuscitation methods and 
people bleeding and but I think most of the problems were people being unwell and and being sick and uh, children with uh, problems with their ears we always carried lots of sweets and used to tell the um, parents what to do when the children mainly on descent because the pressure in the cabin changes it rises as you go down and uh, children's ears get blocked and they cry which is great because the crying actually helps the eustachian tube to open up so uh, ANSET had a very very good record and I think it came down to their maintenance was terrific their pilots were wonderful and their aircraft were well maintained. Uh, Reg Ansett was a very, very hard man, uh, but he was a fair man and he knew how to run an airline. He had that passion for an airline. Once that changed in the 80s when it was sold and uh, Rupert Murdoch and Sir Peter Abels took over, you had a newspaper man and you had a transport mogul and neither one of them really understood how an airline worked and they thought they could pretty much do anything really which was a bit of a rude awakening for them in many ways that their power couldn't buy them the things they wanted to do simply because um, regulations in, in Australia stood in the way. And you were still with ANSET when that change of regime happened? Oh very much yes that was a, that was a reawakening for ANSET as an airline. We were always regarded as the poor cousin to TAA and Don can tell you, my husband Don, that there was always great competition between say two DC9s going say from Sydney to Canberra. The blokes would be uh, racing to get out ahead of each other and they'd be racing to get there on time and it was um, it was a fun time it was serious but it was good fun it was the best days of aviation in the, when Don started in the 60s and me in the 70s uh, it, they were wonderful days safe very the safest time to fly really was then because everything was spot on well life in ANSET was very interesting being married to a pilot very often our rosters didn't match up very well and Don would be arriving home from a flight mm. and I'd be basically walking out the door but but we made it work and uh, we just had a, a, a wonderful time it, it was just a, a fantastic way to earn a living doing something particularly in Don's case but in my case doing something you were passionate about which is a, a great way to earn a living today things are much more different mm. uh, Flying has never been more affordable, which is a great thing, but with that comes cuts in uh, number of cabin crew and turnaround times. We used to have wonderful overnights. Um, we would go on the Fokker Friendship up through uh, to Ayers Rock via Alice Springs, and we'd be away about four days, and that was a marvellous trip. That was really good. Uh, some of the more interesting things too, uh, in those days, in the, in the 80s, particularly in the 80s, that was the days of the Christopher Scases and the Allen Bonds, mm. the White Shoe Brigade, mm. and life was just wonderful for them. They were entrepreneurial, they were earning lots of money, they were spending money like drunken sailors, and the airlines too were doing wonderfully well. Airfares were incredibly high but I can remember crewing from Perth to Melbourne or Melbourne to Perth doing the lunchtime flight on the 727 
and the aircraft could be configured for 52 full fare first-class passengers. And I have actually crewed a number of flights I can remember with 52 first-class passengers and they all were paying a full fare. The economy section was quite small because they had to change the seats round from three to two to accommodate the um, um, first-class passengers. In those days, it was first-class and economy, and then gradually they introduced business class, and that changed the cabin configuration again. But that was quite an interesting experience between the lovely seafood buffet and the drinks and the the, um, desserts and the coffee and the liqueurs. It was hard work. But all those people were all their companies, mainly companies, were paying full fares. So it was a it was a marvelous ride and a wonderful time for the airlines. They struggle a, f- a lot more now, I would suspect. Just listening to your talk, it does sound like you're describing the glory days of domestic uh, air travel in Australia. I, I guess that that would be the way you would put it, is it? Gary, that's a really good way of putting it. The whole country really was profitable. We were riding on the sheep's back. There was full employment. Costs were nothing like they are today, yet everybody managed. People still paid their taxes. Australia was a wonderful place. To, I think that I've had the best years in this country, being born in the 50s and going through the 60s, 70s and 80s. It was a wonderful, prosperous time. It's much tougher now, I, I, I feel. Okay. And I get the sense that you were proud to be working in customer service with such a, uh, a great company with ANSET. Is that right? That's absolutely right, Gary. All I ever wanted to be was a, an air hostess from a small child. So I would say that I had achieved my dream and it was everything I wanted it to be and we had a lot of fun. There were serious times but we had a lot of fun and um, it it was a different era and there was more respect and um, an air hostess then was oh, perhaps a little bit more glamorous too and looked up to by people and the, the passengers certainly were, were respectful and grateful for what you were doing for them and we we worked very very hard but the benefits were amazing and wonderful and yes um, I feel very blessed to have done something for 17 years that I really love doing. My son is quadriplegic so whenever we fly it's quite a complicated uh, process as you could imagine getting in and out of an aircraft dealing with emergency exit procedures, being ready for that, um, having all of the requirements that come with that. And we have found that some of the best people we've met have been flight attendants who have been not just professional and very capable, but, you know, very personable and very compassionate and and, and lovely people as well. And uh, so as one of the travelling public, let me say thank you for, you know, the sort of service and the experience that only could have come from excellent customer service uh, from the flight attendants. Thank you, Gary, very much. One of the major differences is when I first started flying, when I first started flying, you couldn't be married. If you wanted to marry, you had to leave. And certainly families were out of the question. And many senior flight attendants gave up the plan of of a family a husband or children because they wanted to keep doing what they were doing and they weren't allowed to do both. 
Nowadays, particularly, that's changed so much. So many flight attendants that you encounter on flights are their husbands and wives and their mothers and fathers. So I think they have a far better understanding. Because we, in my day, we were a little bit more uh, sort of aloof, as in most, we weren't married and we weren't allowed to be, so there was almost a sort of... um, a distance there that probably you wouldn't find today. Interesting. Hmm, I, th- I think that probably would be one of the differences. But but I think flight attendants in general have always been caring. That's that's what they're there for. And obviously, by the time you met Don, that had changed because you were able to marry and continue your work. Yes, yes. Um, we married in 1981, and I finished flying in 1994. So yes, quite a long time after that. Thank you so much, Sue. It's been lovely to talk to you and to just see the sparkle in your eye as you talk about some of these days where you were part of something great and something enjoyable and something that meant a lot to a lot of people. So thank you very much. Now you're going to hear my conversation with Jane Todd. Jane is a Queensland Air Museum volunteer helping out on the front counter in customer service. Jane, as you'll hear, flew with British Airways. So I was with British Airways in the days when it was still split up into overseas and European divisions or just before that um, split. And um, I was taken on, this was 1975 I started, and I was cabin crew, so I was obviously quite junior and um, you stay quite junior for quite a long time. It never would have got into, I would have taken... 15, 20 years to get into first class. Um, the training is quite, was quite extensive. There was six weeks training, and five weeks of that was the stuff you're talking about that the public see, so the sort of catering and layout of the galleys. Uh, a lot of stuff about grooming, because you're very much the face of the airline, so you're expected to look a certain way, and you, you, know, you had makeup lessons and all that sort of thing. Oh, really? Yeah. Fitted out in the uniform, which the buzz, the excitement of it all is huge. You know, the first time you put your uniform on and you put your hat on. Um, so a lot of that sort of training to start with. And then a full week on SEP, which is safety and emergency procedures. And that involved firefighting. So you crawled through a smoke-filled tunnel and you're um, learning about the different extinguishers and, and using them. Jumping down the, fly, the slide, which scared me to death because we had to go from the top of the jumbo, so right at the top door there in the bump, and that was, I found that really scary. I thought, if there's a fire, I, I will jump, but, but just in training, some I used to say, can you just give me a push, because I won't be able to go and I'd fail the course. Um, lots of first aid, and, and I just showed you my um, first aid book, which we used to have to take with us all the time, so right through burns and cuts through to delivery babies. And did you find yourself in a life jacket floating in the water next to a life raft? In training we did. In training we definitely did. We were in the swimming pool and you had to ju- you had to pretend you ditched and then inflate the life raft or it was inflated as it landed into the into the water but get into it and, and work out how you'd detach or stay attached to the aircraft, whichever was going to be needed. Now I take it you didn't ever actually experience an emergency of uh, in your career, but I can imagine training for that is a very serious business, isn't it? I mean, if it does happen, uh, people's lives are at stake and they need to rely upon you. So 
was it taken seriously or was it seen as sort of uh, unnecessary? How did you approach it? Definitely taken seriously and you had to get 100% in the, in the exam to pass and then we did that every year. You have to do refreshes and do 100%. So definitely taken seriously and it was an era when there were hijackings so that was pretty scary because they were happening, you know, all around. Um, but of course, you're a bunch of young people, so there's a lot of fooling around. And, and I remember, just remember with these slides, they were pushing me out, but people were going around to go again and, and screaming and carrying on. So there's a lot of fun, a huge amount of fun. The whole, the whole experience was a lot of fun. Can, can you tell me then, if you were training or preparing for a hijacking, what were cabin crew expected to do if there was a hijacking? Cooperate. Just don't be a hero. Just do exactly what they tell you to do. But get as much information as you can so that if there was an opportunity to pass any information to the ground. Of course, it never, you know, luckily for me, it never happened. But um, the only... Uh, it was hardly dangerous, but the only emergency that I had was coming out of Calcutta one time and there was a bird strike, but all you know in the cabin is that captain comes on and says, um, said, we're going back. And an, another time, captain, we landed somewhere or another, and um, the captain came out of the cockpit with his tie also skew and sweat pouring down his face, but we hadn't been aware that there was an incident in it and that there had been some sort of close call up there, but he saw that, of course, and but not necessary to take evasive action. So I didn't never had things with the oxygen masks falling down or anything like that. Now you mentioned fun and glamour and so on, you used both those words and I think to the public probably it's a glamorous, it seems like a glamorous occupation and travelling all around the world and working with people who, who are young alongside you and all of those things. But also equally, I mean you're dealing with the public, aren't you? Let's face it people who have paid for a seat on a plane and they're going somewhere, sometimes they're stressed, sometimes they're unwell, sometimes they're just not very nice people. Did you have, uh, there must have been that side of it too that was not pleasant? You always had the back of your mind remembering that a lot of these people are quite scared. The, the, you know, the majority of people are quite nervous and so sometimes that comes out as aggression. Sometimes it's just not, um, not in their uh, culture to say thank you. Also remembering the dynamic of you are standing up and the passengers are sitting down and all the passengers around that passenger, if they're giving you a hard time, they're all listening and watching you. And so you sort of handle it in a really professional, calm way because otherwise you've got, you know, other people thinking, well, she's being very rude. What you wanted was the other passengers to think, I wish he, that passenger would stop giving her a hard time. So they're sort of getting them on your side, really. But mostly it's such a quick transaction on the plane, you, you're giving them a drink or selling them duty-free or whatever, and then you're on to the next one. Um, the, the nice part was looking for the little lady that wanted a cup of tea but didn't dare ask, and, and trying to you know source those people and give them a bit of a helping hand. Or people were looking very frightened or worried, just if you've got time to sit and have a chat with them. But I guess you're always conscious of it's not never a one-on-one. -on -one. There's always an audience. And I imagine on a long-haul flight in particular, uh, my concern would be what if somebody gets on that aircraft who is not in a fit state to travel or they are already agitated or aggressive or something and you know that you're going to be locked into this cabin for the next 15 hours or something. What sort of procedures would you have if, if you met somebody coming in who you had some concerns about? They wouldn't. You wouldn't let them on, really. Quite often, they might have caused a problem at check-in, 
and the message would have been relayed to the to the flight crew and the captain might be involved or they'd just refuse them entry. Um, if somebody got really aggressive on board, you, you know, you'd stop serving the drinks, you'd get the captain or the purser, somebody like that, to go and talk to them. And if it if it if it absolutely escalated, you you got a pair of handcuffs on the first class in the flight deck. I've I've never heard of that being used, but I'm sure well I have in more recent years, in the 70s, I can't remember that happening, but it possibly did. So somebody on that aeroplane is trained to restrain somebody with handcuffs if it comes to that. Now, you mentioned your medical training as part of your training. Did you deal with any medical difficulties on in your career? Then, no, not anything major. The only time I remember um, a lady going into labour and the plane had to divert. I actually can't remember where, but I know we diverted because you, you know, you've got all the other passengers getting upset. But nothing I have had to, had to deal with. I was all set to go and boil the kettle and get some towels, and that's all I knew to do. But, uh, Hot water and towels immediately. Towels. But, but um, no, no, nothing, nothing major, no. So um, I was just going to tell you a funny story about um, supernumerary flights. So when we, when we did our first flight, you're an extra member of the crew. And of course, you're absolutely so excited but terrified that you're going to do something wrong and you don't you know, you don't know how to handle it all. And of course, they play a trick on you. So um, for me, they take you up to the flight deck and you meet the captain. And of course, you know, it's absolutely, oh my God, this is God, really. And, uh, and um, they said to, he said to me, now I want you to go down to, to, to the, all the cabin, remembering you know, 747, put all the air vents facing backwards because that will make the plane take off quicker. And you, you think, oh, really? But you think, I've got to do it. And so off you'd go until somebody would take you out of your misery. Or they'd send somebody... <laughs> They'd send you send somebody downstairs with a with a little gadget and say you got to check the tire pressure, or all, all sorts of stories. So there was a lot of fun like that. So lots and lots of fun. Um, they might put pepper in the oxygen mask. You know when you're doing safety demonstration, they put pepper in there, or worse things. I can't tell you, but um, a lot of fun. But as you said before, there's I think there's still that very serious side to it. And there is it, no question at all after air crash investigations that this kind of preparation and, and training does make a difference in an emergency and it, it is actually a life and death matter even though all of us are bored silly by listening to uh, safety demonstrations and yet they are there for a purpose and they have been proven to save lives. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I did six years, so I did four years on 747s and it was great and I used to come out here all the t to Australia all the time. You could opt to do short trips, so two or three day trips, which would be the States and back, or you could opt to do the longer ones, 21 days, which would be down here and over down to New Zealand and back up again, and lots of you know, days off because it was you know, a long trip. You might you'd do one sector, say Bahrain, night stop, but then the next sector would be, say, to Singapore, you'd have two days off. So, you know, that was when all the fun was because you weren't too tired and you could go and do some shopping and go to the beach, you saw whatever you were going to do. Um, so, after, but after six years, of, four years of that, I was ready for a change and swapped to the European division. And that was a much um, more controlled lifestyle in as much as you had six days on, three days off, six days on, three days off. Because what, I was sort of 20, what was I, 25 or something, and all my friends were getting married and I was missing all the parties and, you know, you'd, you'd meet a bloke and he'd say, well, go out for dinner. And you think, oh, well, I'll be back in three weeks. It wasn't going to work. So I thought, um, I'd like a little bit more of a settled routine and be able to go to parties and go to friends' weddings and all that sort of stuff.
So, no, so the four years on 747s, and then when I went to European, I was on um, Super 111s, which weren't very super. Uh, Trident, <laughs> Trident 1s and 2s, and then the 737, that was new, and that was, that was very exciting because it was a new aircraft for us. So I was going to ask you if you had a favourite aircraft to, to work in. I guess a new one is probably the favourite, is that right? Yeah, well, in, in the little ones, but 747, there's nothing like, nothing like getting on a 747. I still get a buzz if I see one. I've often watched customers, uh, you know, uh, cabin crew in action and just appreciated what they do. And I wonder whether our flying listeners might make a point of thanking them for their uh good service when they when they experience it because to me it seems like it's a it's a real service that's being offered to people and perhaps it's being overlooked or unappreciated it's been great to talk to you do you so you're working uh volunteering at the qam on saturdays is that right yes that's right so i come here every couple of weeks and how's that been fantastic absolutely loving it it's given me you know so so interesting talking to the other volunteers you're finding people with you know these fabulous stories and wealth of experience and um I just get a buzz hearing aircraft and, and the Avgas smell, which you don't get so much at Caloundra. But, <laughs> but you have Avgas in your veins in by now, I'd say. Thank you so much, Jane. Okay, no problems. Thanks, Gary. And now you're going to hear from Barbara Moody. Barbara spoke to me on the telephone from her home in Brisbane. Well, I joined ANA in 1956. Now, ANA, uh, that's Australian National Airways. Airways, yes, in 1956. Right. In April. Um, I was born and bred in Brisbane and went to Melbourne for six weeks training at Essendon Airport and graduated. And because I wasn't 21, I was sent back to Brisbane for the first six months until I turned 21. And then I was uh, transferred to Melbourne and this is 1956 when the Olympic Games were on. And that's when the Tullamarine Airport was being built also in Melbourne. Yes, that's right. It was being developed to be able to take the larger planes from Europe with the teams from the various countries. Now, you began in 1956. How long did you stay with ANA? Until September uh, 1957. Okay. And during that time, tell us a little bit about uh, that experience. Now, we'll, we'll talk about you and we'll talk about the aircraft and we'll talk about ANA. Let's do it that way. So, yeah. so firstly, let's start with what, what were the aircraft that you operated on at that time? DC-3s, DC-4s, DC-6Bs. Right. And, uh, wow, we are going back to the days <laughs> of, of passenger travel uh, in Australia after the war. Yeah. Um, the DC-6B, that would have been a step up from, from where you started. Oh, yes. But that, yeah. was, that was reserved for the Perth flight, Fire Adelaide, out of Melbourne. Perth, okay. And that's that was an overnight flight? Yes. Um, we stayed overnight in Perth. Uh, but but I mean, it was a, you flew at night, I mean. Yes. Okay, so so describe one of those flights for us. So you've got the passengers at that time are probably only the people who are either in business or well heeled enough to pay for <laughs> for a ticket, uh, because mm. it wasn't quite as common then as it is now, was it? So you've got business people, you've got what? Uh, did you have families, whatever? And and sort of describe to us the kind of passenger that you would have had in nineteen fifty seven. I'm mostly businessmen. Um, and when the return flights, when we left 
around about midnight out of Perth, we served a beautiful supper and then we told them to uh, loosen their top button of their shirt and their tie and to loosen their shoelaces because uh, slip-on shoes were the fashion at that time. And, of course, they're and wearing their suits and ties and hats, aren't they? Because that's, that's what right. people did when they were out of the house. Yes, they travelled beautifully dressed. Yeah. And um, most of them had appointments in either Sydney or Melbourne that next morning. Right. And we gave them a pillow and a nice blanket. Okay. Turned it right down to just the strip lighting in the aisle. And then we woke them up to have a nice breakfast about 5.30. And in that time, their hair became ruffled and their beards grew. <laughs> <laughs> and they were quite a different person to the one that sat there. <laughs> so I suppose they had to go into the terminal to have a shave and get spruced up before they went to their business yes. meetings. Yes. yes. I don't remember razors being... Um, Mm. Uh, supplied, and I don't think electric razors that we know today were actually yeah. available, battery-operated ones. No, they probably had cut, cutthroat razors at that point. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, it was such and, a transformation. And in these very small aircraft, so the DC-6B, what's that, two on each side? Yes. 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 No, any room for a trolley? Coming up the aisle? No, we didn't have trolleys. How did no. you How did Some you memories serve? Were 58 passengers. Okay, so how did you serve 58 passengers with no trolley? Just two trays at a time. Up and back, tray, up and back. Put the equipped tray in each hand um, and then um, served row by row. Mm. Okay, uh, a long night for you. How many cabin crew on a DC-6B? Um, we had three hostesses. And three, we had a pilot, a first officer, and an engineer. Okay. So between the three of you, throughout the, is it a seven-hour flight? It was approximately that between Adelaide and Perth. Yeah. And I remember on the return flights first to Adelaide, there was a time where we could have two hours off. If there was a spare seat up the front, we'd just, we'd have that two-hour break. Mm. We also had a pillow and Right. So you try to get a nap. There's always two girls on duty. Yeah. And, uh, of course, everyone's smoking also, aren't they, in 1957? Yes. At the back of the DC-6B, there was a lounge ah. um, that had about eight seats in it and then a, a coffee table with pull-up sides that you could put drinks on. <laughs> but but everyone in their seat was also they had an ashtray so they were all smoking yes, if yes. they wanted and what about the hosties were you smoking too? Oh no oh no oh the girls did I never did take up smoking but after a very stressful flight a lot of the girls when they came back to the hostie room on landing um, the cigarettes came out of the, yeah. the the handbag and they sat back and relaxed and, and de-stressed. They weren't allowed to smoke on duty, of course. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So describe for us, uh, like in, 1950, in the 1950s, the hostesses, if we call them that now, that's what they used to be called, isn't it? The, the flight attendants yeah. were yeah. seen as sort of, they, they were the front line for PR for the airline, right. weren't they? So you had, yeah. you had to be the face of the airline to the that's passengers. Right. How was that? Well, it was good because most people travelling were happy people, um, well, the business people, they, they had a purpose. 
but um, families travelling were um, going to meet family and friends at the other end, and uh, people didn't travel so much for holidays um, mm-hmm. in those days mm-hmm. because you know the airfares were expensive and relatively at the time. But we had the flights, like Brisbane to Sydney was two hours and at EC4, Sydney to Melbourne another two hours, and we had time to talk to our passengers, and this is where the PR aspect came in. And also if someone wanted to know what town or city we were going over, we had to be able to say straight away, oh, that's Grafton or that's Maitland Mm. or um, there's the Murray River or, you know, so Mm. it was easy when it was – Jacaranda time going over Grafton. Mm, gorgeous. Now, so, I, think, I think when you uh, were employed at ANA, you, you were a nurse or you had to have nursing qualifications? Um, Is that right? First, at that point, we had to have first aid certificate. Right. And did you ever need that in, in a flight? Not as such when it came to bandaging anybody up. It was maybe more because uh, the DC3 couldn't go above 10,000 feet and it wasn't mm. pressurised. Mm. So um, it was inclined to some of the trips a little bit on the rough side and people would tend to get airsick, so the sick bag came into play there. <laughs> <laughs> but I do remember one daylight flight in a DC-6B in a massive cumulus clouds over South Australia and Western Australia and we were like sky jockeys going in and around them so that we didn't go through them because there's um, a vacuum in the middle of the cumulus clouds in fact, one of my friends on one of the night flights, because it was before the days of radar, um, they did go through a cumulus cloud at night and the plane dropped mm-hmm. uh, considerably and everything went everywhere. In fact, my friend broke her leg. Um, mm-hmm. And it was the, when the plane landed in Adelaide, um, it was um, you know, quite a, a thing to with their ambulances and that they needed to um, get the injured sorted. Mm, goodness. Uh, so it was a nasty time. But, uh, you know, the technology has improved so much now. Those sorts of things wouldn't happen. I remember in those days there used to be a, an aluminium loading thing that was handed up on a stick, on a, like a V-shaped thing, to, to the captain through the open window on the ground in the airport. Yes. And that was kept in the cockpit between the two pilots. And then when that plane dropped, it, the metal book uh, edges um, cut the forehead of the first officer on the plunge, and uh, so he had to be patched up. We get so used to the to these days flying above the weather, don't we? And it's yes. so smooth yes. and, and very unlikely to, that you'd encounter any serious turbulence. And then they get out of it as soon as they're in it. Whereas That's there right. wasn't much option, was there? You you had to go wherever the weather was, pretty much. <laughs> so true. So true. <laughs> so what about? So uh, the, the one day going across, um, being over the land, over the sea, and then over the land, coming into Cairns in the DC three, we did drop suddenly. Um, and it was a different air pressure up from the land from the sea. Ah, oh, it's just amazing to think about the different conditions you were working under compared to what yeah. what modern aircraft are like. And, and I mean, the DC three door, being no pressure, it was just like an ordinary house door. Mm. And there was one day it started to come open in flight, so that we <laughs> that we had dishcloths and we're like old fashioned um, knitted things 
and I had to knot a couple of those two together and I got it around the handle and anchored it so it didn't open because at a certain point it would have come completely open back to the plane, fuselage. You had to tie up the door to keep it shut. Yes, to keep the the handle in the close position. My (laughs) goodness. I I think you told me that uh, the flight from, was it Sydney to Brisbane, was 10 pounds? Yes. Now... You know, you consider the weekly wage in 1957, so you might be talking a half or a third of an entire week's wage going to one yes. fl- one small short flight. <laughs> I mean, yes. So it, it really hadn't come to the point where just about anyone could fly. Um, no. And so it's no. a whole different kind of clientele, wasn't it? Yes, it was the day when pioneer coaches were the way mm. that all um, greyhound coaches. Greyhound, yep. It was more land travel in, in um, buses that people did. And as the train, alternative. of course, as well. And train, yes. Yeah. And did you enjoy the work? Oh, I loved it. I really loved it. Mm. And uh, you couldn't be married and fly. Yes. And I was keen to, to join Qantas and see the world. But my husband-to-be said, um, marry me and I'll take you around the world which he did, but 20 years and six children later. (laughs) (laughs) Barbara, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. And I know we have a real connection here with our DC3 and your career, and uh, we will explore that. You came and visited us for our open cockpit weekend and shared some of your story underneath the nose of the DC3 in Hangar 2, and that was greatly appreciated. You've also donated a fantastic uh, book to our library, about the the history of ANA, the Australian National Airways. We're so grateful. Barbara, thanks for talking to me today. My pleasure. Bye for now. So that's our episode. It was great speaking with these three ladies. You can tell they were in customer service, can't you? And Jane still is as a volunteer on the front counter. Sue McLeod, Jane Todd, and Barbara Moody. Thank you to all of them. Next week, you're going to hear about three of the aircraft at the Queensland Air Museum that came to the museum in Caloundra uh, after an epic salvage expedition to Sentosa Island in Singapore Harbour. These three aircraft were dubbed the Sentosa Orphans. And you'll hear my conversation with QAM past president Cliff Robinson as he describes that expedition. That's next week in the show. Don't forget that we are open from 10am to 4pm every day, except Christmas Day and Easter Friday, and we would love to meet you. Come into the Queensland Air Museum 7 Pathfinder Drive Caloundra and see us soon. Bye for now.